Hi there, my name is Peter Bell, and today I'm speaking with Annalisa Wall, the CTO and COO at Atensi. Annalisa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for, for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we, we should probably just take a moment to give to give some context. Uh, what is it that Atensi does? So Tense is a Norwegian scale-up doing simulation-based training for, for corporates, basically. So we use game technology, 3D simulations to build learning uh, environments and learning content for, for big global companies, training their workforce in, in uh, realistic simulations, for instance, a store simulation for Starbucks or Circle K, where the customers would go in and train on virtual characters behaving exact same way that we do when we go into Circle K or Starbucks. Cool. So games for the corporate world to, to improve learning and development. World. That's Absolutely. great. Now, presumably building simulations like that, it's not just programming. What, what other kind of professionals are involved in, in solving that class of problem? So having worked more than a decade in, in uh, the gaming business, I often find that people think that gaming is built by only programmers because, you know, tech is built by programmers. Uh, but then at the traditional or typical gaming studio, only a third would be a developer. Uh, the rest would be animators, writers, uh, game designers, psychologists, of course, lots of commercial people and, and business people as well. But the, the core development of, of, uh, uh, of the gaming technology is actually then a combination of creative, uh, people and positions and, and core developers. Yeah. That, that makes sense to me. I remember that the last game I was able to successfully build myself as a programmer with no design skill at all, I think it was a text-based role-playing game in the 1990s. Right? You know, yeah. turn left at the wall and <laughs> that, yeah, that's about as far as you can get into gaming, right? Yeah. So what, what are some of the, the so um, specifically for, for building out these simulations, what kinds of uh, non-programmers do you have involved in, in making that work? So, so the core kind of task that we have, right, is sitting with our customers who have this learning objective that they would like to implement into one of the games that we, uh, give to the, to their employees. And then understanding the key learning objective and kind of how to reach their workforce using the simulation product is key. So then our psychologists and our content writers and developers are like workshopping and going about that with the customers, trying to really sharpen uh, the learning objective and how to, because a gaming experience is really good if it's, if it's, um, how to say if it's really precise, right? Or if it's uh, addressing a specific topic. So if you play FIFA, you're playing soccer. You're not also driving a car or doing <laughs> shooting while you play soccer. So it mm -hmm. all is about making the experience really tailored to that one subject. And that's the same that we do. Um, so our content developers and writers would sit and, and do that with the customers. Got it. So that you've got a content team which are going to build out the scenarios and the flows and, and how that works. What What is their deliverable? Uh, like, what do they ship to the engineering team to say, this is what we need? So this is the magic. So one of the core uh, things in the gaming business is that gaming studios are brilliant at building their own tools for not having that manual handover from the writer to the developer saying, here's my script. 
So why EA is doing FIFA every two years, right? Is that they've invested billions in making the best tools for, for making soccer games. And the same thing is what we're doing. So we're making a tool where customers, partners, anyone can sit and edit and make the content of the simulation. So the actual handover is a push in uh, and the data goes over to the database and out to the app. So it's fully automated. Now, is there any custom programming for a specific customer or is it simply you're building a platform that then allows people to to create experiences kind of like you've got Microsoft PowerPoint? Uh, I don't have to call up Microsoft every time I want to change the fonts or lay things out differently. So how much of it is is almost almost like a, a consumer end experience versus, oh, yeah, but we still have to write 60,000 lines of code to make this thing work? Mm, that's a good question. So, so 80%, I'd say, of uh, everything we do is, is pre-made and can be made through configuration of data. And then, of course, there's customers coming and say, hey, a, a lot of our customers have played Fortnite or World of Warcraft and they come with this epic request, right? <laughs> so we would like to have some of this and some of that and then put into a, a store simulator, for instance. But then... Every now and then we, of course, go in that direction if there's a brilliant idea and then we would implement. But our core vision is to have everything done in, in data through the edit, editing tool. And so do you usually find them when you get these kind of custom requests, do you see that more as just roadmap acceleration? Like, oh, they're asking for a new platform feature and we'll just prioritize it because they're here now. Or is it purely custom code that you're going to have to support and maintain that's only ever going to be used by that customer? Mm, that's a mix. But one of the things, we've been a startup since uh, 2012. And then one of the kind of core visions that we built the company on was that every time a custom feature request would come from a customer, if we accept, we would build it into the platform. So the platform would evolve uh, with the customer requests and then build the platform open with an open architecture, APIs, uh, integrations to every corporate bit out there. Then that was the plan. And, and that's how we kind of evolved over time. So if there's a clever idea and we approve, then it will be a feature in the platform. Got it. So if that's the case, how do you manage the, the feature creep is often an issue with that, where you have lots of different customers driving your workflow when it's effectively an enterprise play? Because, you know, with consumers, they might they might want a feature, but they only have so much impact. But when it's an enterprise writing a large check, they're like, hey, we needed to do that. How do you make those decisions around, we really want this customer but we're not sure that this is a great feature. Like how, how do you, how do you manage the, the planning process around determining what features should be built and supported as part of the, the platform? It's something we debate every day. Just this morning, I had a meeting with our engineering team discussing if we should change the request process again, because is it correct to, to measure on business value? Or is it the future business uh, ROI, which is like the, the, the key thing to measure on? Or is it pure innovation? I mean, for us, having yet another feature pushing the boundary of, of learning could be just as important as future revenue in the very short term. So it's a mix of, it's, it's a mix of things. But then at the end of the day, it needs to be something that can be applied to several customers. So on one reason or another, and we actually also discussed the term of feature fatigue. Mm. 
<laughs> I don't know if that's a common term, but uh, mm -hmm. but if you get lots of customers requesting features and they have big plans for these features and they end up not being used, that's going to drain on your developers, right? And they're not going to be super keen on developing the next feature because they just spent two months pushing this epic leaderboard feature, which no one used. So it's kind of a fine balance between listening to the, to the customers and the sales team and then also doing what we, our instincts tell should be the next feature. That makes sense. So when you look at this, I mean, it's in some ways, it's the, the value proposition is clear and it's a straightforward sale. But in other ways, the implementation, what you can realistically do has a lot of very discrete technical limitations. Uh, how technical does your sales team have to be? Do you do you have technical salespeople or do they manage on do they focus on managing the relationship and then you have like pre-sales engineers? Like how do you how do you square the circle of managing to ensure that the salespeople aren't like, sure, of course you can magically teleport people from one part of the world <laughs> to the other. Yeah. We we'll talk to the dev team about it. We should have it done by the end of the month. We have those in sales and I hope they don't listen to this podcast because they're not technical or actually some of the most successful we have on sales are those who understand enough of the deep technology behind what they're kind of selling and explaining to the customers. If you as a salesperson are able to, to sit in a meeting with the customer and then Explain at least the bare minimum. What does it mean to have an integration with OAuth or with OpenID Connect? Yes, we can do that because ABC. So just to give them the lingo and the yeses and the noes. So this you can say yes to, this you can say or don't say yes to. I think that's been the key. But we're wrapping them uh, together with a, a pre-sales or technical sales people. Uh, also, our customer success is quite techy. So, so they would also go in and, and uh, help out on that. But then also we, we end up having meeting with the IT departments and I mean, more the technical identity team and, and whatnot. And then we, of course, send in some of the engineers or some of the, the more techy people. That makes sense. Now, wh when you think about uh, roadmaps and timing, it, it's always fascinating because it's like when you're building for a, a classic traditional SaaS product, there is alignment required across departments because if you're going to be shipping a feature for a big trade show, marketing needs to know two months in advance so they can create the brochures or whatever it is, uh, assuming people ever meet in person again. Um, but once we get outside of that, how do you manage the, the alignment? And like when you're prioritizing the backlog, how do you know that you can build that 20% more or less in the time it will take for you to do the other storyboarding so that you will be able to ship the next simulation on October the 12th. So we have a brilliant team of engineering leaders here who are quite diligent, I'd say, in the whole planning process. So using a combination of Agile and OKRs is, is basically what we do. Not on We don't use OKRs down to the team level or to the individual level, but on the kind of product and platform planning level. So every year we start out, we plan 18 months ahead on like these are the key strategic features that we would like to see. Mix of customer input, input and our own uh, vision. And then every quarter we revisit and say, okay, what's the next chunk for this quarter? And then we, 
adjust and then we go ahead and do sprints like regular sprints in in that sense and then there's a constant mix between um if this big customer the epic dream customer comes along right and uh, and they want to just toss everything away we typically have done that because it's the customer but then we also make sure to not jeopardize any of the, the features or whatnot who have been committed to other customers but we're quite structured have been now on, on the planning uh, process which works quite well but I also find that it's a topic that's uh, very popular to discuss uh, at least among our engineering leaders should we reinvent the planning process so uh, yeah Constant debate. Are there pain points? Like what 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 is driving some of the engineering leaders to think, hmm, maybe we could improve this? Are there are there, are there bumps that you experience? I think it boils down to I mean talking specifically for OKRs, keeping OKRs at the level where you need your team to commit and feel the, the responsibility to deliver. And then keeping them tangible so that you can say at the end of the quarter, did I achieve this? Uh, this tool should have been used by at least five customers. Check. Mm-hmm. And then yes, no. But then keep tying that into the actual feature or the features that made up that KR. That is kind of a constant debate. Should we then write out because we implemented uh, ABZ into whether new hosting tool or whatnot? Or should that be a separate roadmap? So that's one of the kind of headaches that we're going about. Should the OKR stuff be one roadmap and then the feature roadmap be another one? If you have the answer to that, Peter, I'll be <laughs> <laughs> listening in. I, I wish I had the answer. I mean, it's interesting because there's always this ongoing debate. So, for example, how do you think about technical debt and, and engaging that with OKRs? And I've seen two broad approaches. One which I think works very well is saying, look, I want to set expectations. 25% of engineering effort, usually I see the number being between 20 and 30%, is going to be paying down technical debt. You hired me as an engineering leader to figure out what we need to do. So me and my team will take care of that. The other way I've seen it done is I've seen people say you should never talk about technical debt because what is the meaning of the technical debt? Oh, there is an issue in reliability. There's an issue in responsiveness. There is an issue in our ability to have more than a certain number of simultaneous users. Those are all business goals that can absolutely be captured in OKRs. And then you roll down the, okay, we need to move from one persistent store to another as a specific way to increase the number of simultaneous customers you can handle or the, the maximum data file size or something mm. like that. Mm. And I'm happy that you bring up technical debt because I think that the, the word is such, that's negative loaded, right? So that any non-technical executive would think, oh, do we have, we have debt? I mean, oh, we don't want that. Can you just get rid of that? <coughs> not fixing it, but can you just uh, put that in the closet and not talk about it, right? So, but then you can bring the analogy back to them. And you, do you ever tidy your house? Do you like... Uh, Leave everything, just uh, your dishes, your whatnot uh, on the floor and everything. And no, you clean up your house and you, you do dusting and everything. And that is kind of the same. You need to kind of keep things in clean. I think yeah, anywhere between 20 and 30% uh, ish should be allocated to that. And that is, I think, to keep the, the developer's sanity uh, <laughs> and happy in the whole thing. If you ever meet developers then who are 
going to spend all of their time, oh, I want to refactor, that's what I want to do, or I just want to work on technical depth, then the alarm flags should go off as well. But I think so. it needs to be a constant thing, right? Because it's what we are working on every day. So it should have some good structure. Absolutely. So so another common issue in the planning phase is it turns out, you know, the, the plan... Planning is essential, but plans are always wrong, right? So what happens when you're like, oh, this is just, it's only going to take three weeks to do that, especially given that you're dealing with some technologies that are nascent. They're the early stage technologies. So there are more unknown unknowns. Oh, it turns out that unless we get everyone to upgrade their laptop, we can't make this feature work because there's not the, you know, we, we can't, there's the latency of like processing it in the cloud is too slow and the processor power is, is too limited on, on end devices for this market. Firstly, how do you deal with overruns? Like, so you were going to be done in a two week sprint two days before, and you're about halfway there, you hope. What, what, what do you do? Do you just, do you, do you bump the roadmap? Do you satisfy on functionality? How do you have those discussions with the engineering and with the sales and business teams? So it's, it's a good one and it's a constant, uh, ongoing thing. So with the engineers, of course, breaking it down, what is actually stopping us in our case, it's very often the customer <laughs> so that we are delivering to them. We're requesting stuff and then, um, we're waiting. Uh, and then it's a fundamental thing to, for the developers not, not to just sit there and wait, right? Two, three, four days. What can I do while waiting? Well, we have this backlog of tasks. Go grab a new one and then you're, you're on the go. Um, and then for us to then signal that to the services and to the sales team saying, Hey, we're behind because we need to test this. Um, for us being so integrated into a corporate kind of landscape of tech with the customers, then getting test access is a big blocker, right? So if we are to test our Active Directory integration, we need an Active Directory test user, right? In order to see it through. And that kind of whole, whole thing is, is, is going. Um, if you look at features, um, we try to break things down in the whole classic MVP structure, right? So rather limit it down, agreeing with the customer or the, or the sales team that it's actually better for both the customer and us as a dev team to put out this small set of features to test that, iterate, get feedback and, and get it going. And then typically after explaining that, I, I typically use a, uh, you know, Lego, the bricks uh, that you build comes with this uh, recipe. So first you put on the wheels and then you kind of build the whole car, the Lego car. And I show them one of those, you know, you have to do this in steps. If you just get your whole pile of Legos, you can build anything, but you need to build it according to the instructions in iterations, right? So, so... Slowly, the kind of, uh, they're buying into the whole small iterations, um, doing the MVP approach, testing, and then also the uh, customers will get more ownership into the whole process. And presumably it becomes less painful over time as a higher percentage of the platform is built out. So it's a little easier to say, well, bad news, we can't do this thing, but we can kind of do the other stuff, which more or less satisfies the learning and business objectives. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. And then as we build a broader platform, it will, it will evolve over time. 
That makes sense. So, so psychologists, behavioral scientists, you, you've got a, a number of professionals who, who are not software engineers. How do you help them to understand the limitations of what an engineering team can do? How, when you are coming out with the idea of like, maybe we should build a new feature that does X, how do you go around the, go through the process of, of planning and specking that out when it requires that kind of cross-functional input? Hmm. Um, if I were to re um, order up the, the number of feature creepers or like put a leaderboard on the ones doing the most feature creeps internally, uh, sales would be first and then the, the psychologists and the behavioral scientists, because they uh, both have deep knowledge of the gaming technology. That's what they're specializing on, right? What, how we can trigger emotions, how we can change behavior and adopt new behaviors through games. And then, of course, they have the biggest visions and the biggest like crazy ideas on how you could use language recognition or how you could do sensors through watch to steer your learning. And then we have to just sit down and say, hey, but everyone at this big corporate landscape, they don't have uh, or they're not going to do VR. They're not going to do sensors on all of their employees. So just let's go back to basic and then just... Uh, see the most um, easy to adopt use case from the start and then sit with the customer because the customer can have crazy ideas and then they will be all um, um, uh, fired up by the, by the psychologists, right? And then you have to bring it down again. Let's, and back to the MVP and back to the, like, let's do the basics. Let's do the facial animations first and then you can do face recognition and you can do deep fake and then yeah step by step and so on yeah is it challenging I, I i'd almost feel like by being game adjacent you're very near to the gaming world i mm. i, I want does that make in some ways your life more difficult because people are like how hard can it be i paid 60 bucks and i got a game that did all these things um so clearly for you know if we give you a couple of thousand dollars we're going to get something better than that do, do you run into those kind of expectations yeah yeah all the time so as i said previous i mean our customers come with the expectations of fortnite like uh play uh experiences and, and gameplay right and then in the next sentence they would say and you would have to run on internet explorer 9 <laughs> And we're like, okay, <laughs> so you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? So then that's the kind of biggest challenge that we have is like backwards compatibility. Um, uh, you know, gaming experiences in the browsers, they would run in WebGL. Mm -hmm. WebGL has only a subset of browsers that it supports. And then explaining that to the customers as well uh, is that, yes, you can run in the browser, but only if. And then uh, also on the on the mobile because we're cross-platform, right? So we deal a lot with the backwards compatibility issues, and then um, making sure that our apps and products are small, tiny. Because if you if you I started Fortnite uh, for my kid uh, yesterday after like a month of uh, of break, and I had to download I don't know two gigs uh, patch, and just sat there in twenty minutes and waited. The 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 corporate customers doesn't. They don't want to wait 20 minutes for a gig patch, right? Mm -hmm. So then we need to make tiny products, like typically 100 megabytes plus minus, and they are expected to have Fortnite-like Fortnite 
behaviors. So that's a constant challenge that uh, we need to compress a lot of data and then make sure that our streaming and our downloading processes are really smart. So one question I have, which I'd, I'd, I'd love to, to dig into is how do you think, obviously you, you're kind of towards the, the tip of the spear in terms of potentially adopting new technologies. On the one hand, you're dealing with enterprises that want IE9, but on the other hand, you're inhabiting a world where people are thinking about VR, speech recognition, deep fakes, things like that. What do you think are going to be the next few technologies that are going to start to make their way maybe from the gaming world or should start to make their way from the gaming world to even productivity or everyday apps within the enterprise? So I think, as I said, speech recognition is going to be one of the like next big triggers that that opens up a massive landscape, not only in learning, but in so many other, I mean, for, for disabled people or others with spe- speech problems, right? It's going to be a massive game changer. Um, in the learning uh, and, and development space, you could only envision if you work at a call center, training on having a call with a virtual avatar while speaking would be so much more immersive and realistic, right? Than sitting and clicking on e-learning or, or something passive like that, or having a mentor listening in. So getting that, I mean, good and into not only for the uh, I mean, for us working in a non-English speaking country, right? Having good enough language engines out there that can actually fast process and that the cloud ping and everything is quite fast. So they can actually use good and precise speech recognitions in consumer apps would be, I mean, Siri and Siri is a Norwegian uh, name and, and origin. So, so that is a good example. But then, um, I think that will be, be, um, one of the key things, as well as streaming of games. I mean, we could do a podcast episode on that alone because it's a, it's kind of a mind puzzle that you have Netflix, you have all these other medias streaming, right? Uh, but not games. You know, there's so many big players out there. Google Stadia had this big launch. Was it last year with Assassin's Creed? And I mean, if Google can't, <laughs> then what's, uh, I mean, who, who, who's out there who can kind of crack that open? So for us, that would solve, I mean, the whole, the biggest challenge that we have, which is distribution, right? So that's the thing that I'm looking most forward to, at least in the, in the whole development. Yeah. And just to ask that, because it always fascinates me, is that a, a frames per second latency and resolution problem? So it's basically just you need fatter pipes uh, or better compression? Or is, is there, are people working on some kind of intermediate way where you can describe the geometries and like, how, how do you, how do you move forward to, to try to solve that problem? Any idea? Yeah. So th- yeah, no, I wish <laughs> then I would start a new company. <laughs> No, so it's, it's like you say, it's a pipeline of things, right? Because it's the 3D processing in the cloud, which is the first step. And then bringing both the geometry, your positioning, your, your actions through the pipes or through the network, uh, network through the, the consumer. And you can only imagine like only playing a first person shooter console versus PC, you experience the latency. You're down to milliseconds. So if you have several stages or, or, or steps that causes delays in, in latency critical gameplay, um, you're not gonna, you're not gonna succeed. And also it's something about the whole 
immersiveness, right? Because if you play one of the big adventure games like Assassin's Creed or, or, or Fallout or, or any open world game, it's also about downloading and streaming enough content in high res, right? So that you actually don't feel like you're back to the Commodore Amiga 8-bit uh, graphics uh, age, but you're actually in a, in a realistic setting. So there's a combination of, of steps in the pipeline, which really makes it complicated. Makes perfect sense. Well, Annalisa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.